It's very nice to receive a commendation. One of the things that we do here in the Dallas Church, speakers are aware of this, uh, is that we are asked to send the title of our messages to a number of people ahead of the service. So uh, Diane Bennis caught me before services. Thank you, Mrs. Bennis. And she gave me a commendation. She said, you sent the title of your sermon, and I did it, I think, on Monday. Now, it was a little trick, because uh, the sermon was essentially already written. The sermon that I'm about to give, I gave in Sherman about three weeks ago. Nevertheless, she said, thank you so much. And then she said, uh, she said, not everybody does that. We have to kind of nudge people. But you sent us the title of your sermon, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, as I recall. It's great to receive a commendation. I feel so good as a result of that. Have you ever received a commendation? At work, anybody ever said, you did a good job, you were the employee of the week, maybe got a bonus, maybe from your spouse, probably feels even better than from your boss, maybe from your pastor, or maybe even from God himself. What I'd like to do this afternoon is talk about someone who receives one of the most remarkable commendations that I think we ever see in the Bible. It's striking. And we even look at the words on the page and say, whoa, this man, I haven't told you his name yet, but some of you probably can figure out where I'm going. This man receives a commendation that is truly out of the ordinary. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. Now I'll solve the mystery. Always good to begin the sermon with a little bit of curiosity. But some of you are so sharp with your Bible knowledge, you know where I'm going. Maybe not everybody does. Luke 7, verses 27 and 28. This man really received a commendation. Luke 7, verse 27. Jesus here is speaking about John the Baptist and uh, about his lifestyle. He wasn't a man in clothed in soft garments, as it says there in verse 25. Luke 7, verse 27. This is he of whom it is written... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That is a quote from the Old Testament from the book of Malachi. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And then in verse 28, this commendation, to me, this is just striking. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Whoa. John the Baptist was greater than Isaiah the prophet? Jeremiah the prophet, Ezekiel the prophet, Daniel the prophet. That's what it says. There is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And I'm going to hold the second part of the verse because what the second part of the verse says is in some ways even more striking. A commendation for a man who came on the scene as the forerunner, a man who came on the scene to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that, that indented uh, quote in verse 27, you probably got an indent in your Bible, is in fact a quote from the book of Malachi. And we'll come back to the book of Malachi. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but a little bit of time in the book of Malachi. John the Baptist, who was he? What was his role? What part did he play in God's plan? Interestingly, I thought about Mr. Beltran's sermonette. Uh, Joshua got a lot of words of encouragement directly from God. 
There's a little bit of a contrast here because it's quite true. We love encouragement. We love somebody to say, look, you're going to be given success in the things that you're going to do. And those words, be strong and of good courage, were a guarantee of success for Joshua if he did what was right before God. Contrast this man that we're going to look at in the sermon. In John chapter 1, let's turn to John chapter 1 and begin in verse 19. Who are you? The Baptist, who are you? And interestingly, he didn't even seem to fully understand who he was. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Jerusalem, of course, was the center of things. It was the urban center where the religious establishment worked and did their thing, and the temple was there, of course, and the Baptist was an outsider in many ways. Who are you? He confessed, verse 20, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He understood that. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now look at this, because we're going to come back to this in a moment. He said, I am not no, I'm not Elijah. And then they said, are you the prophet? That's the prophet who was prophesied to come in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He said, no. The Baptist kept on saying, no, 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 no. I'm none of these. Okay, so who are you? Where did you get your authority? They said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? They wanted to check on his authenticity. Now, you know, we can read this and maybe perhaps not stop to think about how significant this was, because the Jewish community in that first century was accustomed to imposters coming along. The scriptures, the New Testament, make it pretty clear there have been a lot of imposters. But then he says in verse 23, verse 23, he said, I am the, one of, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I have on my desks a plaque that I got a number of years ago, and it includes those wonderful words from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Sometimes people ask me, what's my favorite scripture in the Bible? And I think that might rate as one of my favorite scriptures. But Isaiah 40 is a loaded chapter. And John the Baptist knew his Bible, of course, and he read in Isaiah chapter 40, and he said, this is me. This is my commission. Isaiah 40. Let's turn back there. Isaiah chapter 40. And we'll read verses 3 through 5. Because this was where the Baptist got his inspiration. The Baptist was a bit of a loner. But he read. He studied. And he understood, at least to some extent, what his role was. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That phrase has almost become uh, an idiom in our English. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. It was dry. It was a desert out there. And here comes the voice of a true prophet of God. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You wonder how, you know, how did the Baptist react when he read the book of Isaiah and he said, this is me. <laughs> it must have been quite a moment. 
Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice crying out in the midst of a desert. A voice of a true prophet of God. The voice of somebody who came along, commissioned of God, to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we've probably read about John the Baptist before, but when you stop and think about what he had to do, this was really, really unusual because the Baptist was very much a loner. He's in the wilderness of Judea. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not part of the religious establishment. He's out in the wilderness. He's an outsider in that sense. He wasn't part of the religious establishment there in uh, Jerusalem. He ate a strange diet, locusts and wild honey. I won't ask for a show of hands how many have eaten locusts. I never have. I have no great desire to eat locusts. But they are clean, by the way. <laughs> the scriptures say very clear, clearly that lo locusts are clean. Maybe at some point in the future, if food gets short, we will have to eat locusts. I don't know. But up to this point, I've never eaten a locust. I have tried. I have eaten honey. All of us have eaten honey. That tastes good. I don't really know what uh, locusts uh, taste like. Um, but he came wearing strange garb as well, a camel hair coat. It was really a loner kind of a role. He was really very, very lonely. He came out of the wilderness and came bringing a message to people in the city. He came from the Jordan Valley, east of Jerusalem, the wilderness of Judea. He was very much a lone voice. Um, he was also a loner in the chronological sense, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But let's take a look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3 the first few verses in this chapter. John the Baptist was a loner. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 4. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that first word was very familiar. This sounded like... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the other prophets repent. But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ was about to come. He was the king and is the king of the kingdom of heaven. This is he who, he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah saying, and there's the same quotation from Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, verse Four, and John himself was clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Hey, wait a second. This guy doesn't look like any of the priests in Jerusalem whom we're accustomed to. He's dressed unusually. He's got this leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. He's not sitting in classy restaurants. He's eating locusts and wild honey out in the wilderness. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Yes, he baptized. This was baptism prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there may be some overlap. There was some overlap between John the Baptist and Jesus coming and beginning to uh, begin, uh, work his, his ministry. But nevertheless, it was baptism prior to the day of Pentecost, which was uh, practiced in the Jewish community. Still is, by the way. 
the way. The, uh, the Jewish community baptizes uh, women. Um, they, uh, they baptize women who want to convert into Judaism. So he came and he baptized people, a large number of people. And yet he's still very much a loner. Who was the last prophetic voice prior to John the Baptist's authentic prophetic voice? Stop to think for a moment. There's a long lapse there. How does the curtain come down in the, New, in the Old Testament? The curtain comes down chronologically with somebody whose name is Malachi. We don't know actually that much about Malachi. There's a book named after him. I think he was a real individual. Some say he wasn't even a real individual. I don't believe that. I think he was, but there's very little mention of him uh, outside of the book named after him. How long before John the Baptist was Malachi on the scene? Roughly 400 years, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. The Baptists and the uh, scholars give different dates for John the Baptist, the 20s AD, some say 27 to 29 AD. But the previous genuine prophetic voice had come on the scene 400 years earlier. So stop and think for a moment. There would surely have been a little bit of suspicion in the Jewish community of those days, because all of these fakes and these impostors had come along claiming to be true prophets of God, and in some cases, their own experience proved that it wasn't so. What did Gamaliel say? You remember that very wise individual, Gamaliel, in the book of Acts? We'll turn there. Let's turn to Acts chapter 5, because this sort of bears on this. This is, of course, after the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 5, there was a very wise individual and the religious establishment is trying to stamp out this body of Jews who are followers of Jesus Christ. It bothered them. It troubled them. Let's, let's, let's put an end to it. And a very wise man, Gamaliel, comes along. It's interesting because it says that he was actually a Pharisee. But he makes reference to the fact that a lot of people had come and gone and had been proved to be fake, genuine, a bunch of impostors. Acts chapter 5, verse 33, Gamaliel's famous advice. I think this is amazing. When they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. They insist on preaching in the name of this Jesus. We're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. So the religious establishment is mad at them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So privately, he wants to say, oh, wait a second, wait a second. Let's be careful about what we're doing here. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves for what you intend to do regarding these men. And then he mentions a number of individuals who have come and gone. This one, Theodos, in uh, verse 36. And another one in verse 37, Judas of Galilee rose up and he built a following. And this all kind of ended. It just sort of petered out. And then he goes on to say, and it was really a piece of wisdom, wasn't it? If this is of God, you don't want to oppose it. If it's not of God, it's going to come and go like everything else. So my point being here that the Jewish community in the first century must surely have had a good measure of skepticism and suspicion. Is this guy for real? 
And it's interesting if you ever take a look at some of these intertestamental books, and they're not part of the Bible, but uh, uh, they're interesting because some of them are very, very obviously not the product of a sound mind. There were a lot of things that were written during those 400 years that claimed to be genuine God-given messages, and they were not, of course. There were no such thing. So here comes this man, the voice in the wilderness, strange diet, outsider, and he's the first genuine prophetic voice in about 400 years. And worse still, even his own father was a skeptic. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Even within his own family, there was skepticism. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Luke 1, verse 18, you remember this about uh, the Baptist's birth. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and, who set, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. His father, remember, was then mute. And at one point, they, the question was, who, what's his name going to be? And they give his father sort of a writing pad. His name is John. But even his father didn't fully understand the impact of this son who was going to be born of him and his wife. Verse 21. The people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. He beckoned to them and he remained speechless. He was unable to say anything. And then verse 24, see, it was Zechariah's lack of faith that was penalized here. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, The Lord has dealt, has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. Even from his own father, there was an element of disbelief. So along comes John the Baptist in this almost hostile environment, saying, let's get ready. Messiah is coming. You need to listen to him. Part of what, what he had to say, of course, was he's got a bigger message than mine. Now, the environment then wasn't conducive to teaching the truth. Sound familiar? <laughs> think of 21st century. Think of where we are today. You know, I, I look on our website, and uh, the people in media have done a really, really good job, by the way. I was commenting this to Eric Jones just yesterday over lunch. We've got some really good publications there, very, very good material. And I'm sure these podcasts that are going to begin to come out next year will be good. Um, uh, but um, the, uh, the land, the terrain has changed over the last few decades, as I think we all realize. People are less interested in things biblical. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul gives Timothy a warning. I think it applies to John the Baptist, and I think it applies to us as well. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to read it in what's referred to as the expanded Bible, the EXB. 
I didn't even know this existed until I went on Bible Gateway and took a look. The expanded Bible, you can follow along in your New King James Version. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes to Timothy, I give you a command, brackets, solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, the one who will judge the living and the dead, and by his coming, appearing, brackets, and his kingdom, preach the good news, brackets, gospel. Be ready at all times, brackets, whether it is convenient or inconvenient, in season or out of season, and tell people what they need to do, brackets, correct, reprove. Tell them when they are wrong, brackets, reprove. Encourage, brackets, comfort, exhort them with great patience and careful teaching, brackets, all patience and teaching. Because the time will come when people will not listen to, brackets, put up with, endure, the true, brackets, sound, healthy, teaching, but will find many more, brackets, gather around themselves, accumulate, teachers who please them. Sound familiar? Watch your TV tomorrow morning. You can see a little of that. Brackets, meet their needs, desires, by saying the things they want to hear. Brackets, their ears itch for. They will stop listening to, brackets, turn their ears, hearing away from, the truth, and will begin to follow, brackets, wander, turn aside to, false stories, brackets, myths. EXB, the expanded Bible. Like I said, I never even knew that existed, but discovered it a little while ago. But if that sounds familiar, doesn't it sound a little bit like where we are today, the Western world? Maybe less so for the United States, but certainly other parts of the Western world, Australia, Canada, uh, Western Europe, where people have uh, really, many, many people have abandoned any knowledge, any interest in things, matters of faith. Sounds like the mass message of the church, doesn't it? Um, get ready, because it's not going to be well received. You know, from time to time, our message, of course, is a very unpopular message. We have to say certain things to the world that are not easy to say, and are not going to be well received. Perhaps it sounds a little bit like us individually. Sometimes the things that come up in your place of work, sometimes the things that come up in college, our young people in college having to say, you know, I don't believe this, or I won't become involved in this. The environment was not easy for the Baptist to come into. And yet, John the Baptist was faithful to his calling. John chapter 1, verse 32. John chapter 1 and verse 32. John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he, uh, of course the Trinitarians uh, did the New King James Version, so I'll just read it as it is, remained upon him. I did not know him, Christ, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. I think that's part of the example of John the Baptist. He did his work. He did it faithfully. He did it in circumstances that were not easy to function in. 
He did it in an environment that was not conducive for people listening to the true message that he had to bring. There was um, some of the things that he said were even more difficult to say. He sees some of the religious leaders coming to him. They'd heard his prophetic message. And we've had this in the church as well. You know, from time to time, some people will hear the prophetic message of the church. They accept part of it. They are fascinated by part of it. And then they realize, whoa, you know, difficult times are coming. I'd like to avoid those difficult times. In Luke chapter 3, How's this for not pulling punches? Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, multitudes, I mean, this was a big, big crop of people. Lots of people who came to be baptized. His preaching convinced people up to a point, but... Obviously, something was lacking. Brood of vipers. Whoa, I don't know whether I would have the courage to say that to anybody. Somebody came to me and said, I want to be baptized. And, you know, I uh, think about it and say, you know, I don't think this person is ready to be baptized. I don't think I would turn around and call them a name like that. Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Have you ever taken a look at vipers? I don't know very much about vipers, but apparently there's some debate about vipers and rattlesnakes. Which is more venomous, a viper or a rattlesnake? Someone's going to come up to me after services and and, and fill me in, I know. Vipers, venomous snakes with fangs and tentacles. have these little tentacles on their heads and they inject venom. That's quite a thing to call people. Call them a brood of vipers. Let's read a little bit more here. Verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. He was a prophet in the classical sense. You've got to repent. You've got to change your way of life. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Simply being descended from Abraham is not sufficient. This is one of the messages of the New Testament all the way through the New Testament. It doesn't matter what your bloodline is. It matters what you're doing with your life. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This was not a popular message. This was not an easy message to hear. Some of them wanted to hear from John the Baptist. You're fine, buddy. You've got your descent from Abraham or from whoever it may be, one of the sons of Jacob. You're fine. We're on easy street. The Baptist said, no, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to make a change in your way of life. John the Baptist, to me, is a wonderful example of something that I think we admire and something that I've come to admire in people that I've known over the years, especially people I've known in the Church of God, and that is integrity. The more time goes by, the more I learn to value integrity in the people that I've known and that I've worked with. Some, sadly are not people of integrity. I've known people, you've known people who are not people of integrity, people of opportunism. But integrity is highly valued. Integrity says, I'm going to do what's right, and I'm not really going to worry about the consequences. I found a couple of interesting quotes about uh, integrity and opportunism. Trent Shelton, NFL wide receiver, quote, 
There's something wrong with your character if opportunity controls your loyalty. Isn't that an interesting quote? President Dwight D. Eisenhower. I love this quote. The opportunist thinks of me and today. The statesman thinks of us and tomorrow. <laughs> Integrity versus opportunism. And, you know, and of course, we look around the political uh, uh, atmosphere today and we see an awful lot of opportunism and probably we would like to see a whole lot more integrity, more leadership. John the Baptist demonstrated that. He said, I'm going to do what's right no matter where things fall out. Let's go to Mark chapter 6. This incident... You know, of course, how John the Baptist's life ended. He was actually a martyr. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. But do we know exactly what was going on here? Mark 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. Him here, of course, is Jesus. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. Others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. They're trying to figure out who Jesus was. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. John had become a martyr at this point. He gave up his life for the truth. He's been raised from the dead. Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Herod had married her because John said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, Josephus here gives a slightly different explanation of what had happened. I'll read from Josephus, but then let's come back to Mark's gospel. Josephus wrote very kindly of John. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to the righteousness toward one another and piety toward God, and so to come to baptism. Antiquities of the Jews, book 18. But here in Mark, we get something that Josephus did not record. Uh, John the Baptist said something. And when he said something, it got him in big trouble. What's happened here? Herod took his sister-in-law and married her while his brother was still living. In actual fact, what John the Baptist is doing here is standing up for the law of God. Keep your place here in Mark chapter 16. We'll come back to it in a moment. And turn with me to Leviticus 18 and verse 16. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16. It took guts to do what he did. It took courage. Leviticus 18, verse 16. It was forbidden in the law of God what Herod had done. So uh, Leviticus 18, verse 16. There we go. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. So that relationship was actually forbidden of God. And John the Baptist said so to Herod. Can you imagine how much courage it took for him to say a thing like that? And then in Leviticus 20 and verse 21, the penalty is given under the law of Moses. Leviticus 20 and verse 21. 
If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So in back there in Mark chapter 6, where, the, where Herod is recalling the fact that he put John the Baptist to death. It doesn't give us all the details, but what happened, John the Baptist stood up to him and he said, what you're doing is wrong in God's sight. As it says there in verse 18, it indicates there. John has said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19, we're still on the kind of a flashback here. So Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he did many things, and he heard, them, heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles. I think we know this story. There's a big party. High officers, chief men of Galilee. Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and those who sat with him. We can use our imaginations here. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. In fact, he took a vow, in effect. She went and she said to her mother, what should I ask for? I want that prophet dead. The head of John the Baptist. So she came in with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod struggled with it and tried to find a way out. And yet because he'd made a commitment like that, he went ahead and executed John the Baptist. What the Baptist did there, and this is our example, of course, it took courage. We heard about courage in the sermonette. It took guts to do that. He said, what you're doing is not right. John the Baptist was an example of courage. He was an example of godly courage. He was an example of Christian courage. Let's go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and focus on another aspect of this man's character. It's amazing how much there is in the Bible about John the Baptist. When you dig in, there's an awful lot. Really, much of his biography is included here. John 1, verses 26 and 27. Uh, we've already read these verses, but he makes the comment that he's not as great as the one who is to come. Uh, I baptize with water. Somebody is going to come after me whose sandal strap, I'm in verse 27, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. This man who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. Um, he makes similar comments. John 3, verse 27. John 3, verse 27. This tells us something about him as well. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John was a man of humility. He was humble. He knew that somebody was coming after him who was greater than him. And he said it very quickly. The one who comes after the me is greater than me. We live in a world where humility is sometimes a scarce commodity, isn't it? Um, not good. Humility is really an essential commodity to serve God effectively. Matthew 3, verses 11 through 15. Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist was humble. John the Baptist was humble. Matthew 
Matthew 3 and verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water to repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is greater than I. Humility. John the Baptist was an example of humility. And really, you know, we've had sermons on this in the past, and it's such a big subject, and it's such a critically important subject. But when somebody doesn't have humility, all the other stuff, all of the other natural ability doesn't really count for very much. Without humility, we can't accomplish much of anything in God's service. In fact, prideful people often go in completely the wrong direction. I must decrease. He must increase. Someone else is coming after me who's more important than me. I think of a good friend of mine. I won't mention his name. I don't think he would like it if I mentioned his name publicly. But I have a very good friend who's a minister in Latin America. And this man, whom I've known for many, many years, uh, he's been a very, very effective minister and a very, very kind and a very humble person. And many years ago, before he was ordained, the gentleman who was then the Spanish director, uh, his, his name was Walter Dickinson. Some of you will remember Walter Dickinson, the Spanish director prior to Mr. Leon Walker. Anyway, Mr. Dickinson um, uh, asked this, actually was the pastor who asked this man. He wasn't yet ordained, and he said to the man, I want you to give a sermonette. And this man said, no, no, I'm not going to give a sermonette. I, I don't want to be a minister. I don't want to be a minister. So Mr. Dickinson called him into his office and he sat him down. He said, look, he said, when you get an opportunity like that in God's church, you don't turn it down. He said to him, look, Mr. Dickinson, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a minister. I don't want to give sermonettes. Uh, and uh, of course, this happened sort of almost against his will. Time went, went by and he became a minister. And he's been a very faithful minister in the church of God for a long time. But I think of that many times. I think of this man's humility. Humility, like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a humble individual. But they asked him, they said, who are you? Go, go back with me to John chapter 1, because this is interesting. And it tells us something else about the Baptist and about us. John chapter 1 and verse 19. John 1 verse 19, and we've, we read this. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Who are you? Are you Elijah? And I want to focus on verse 21. John 1, verse 21. They asked him, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Didn't somebody actually say that he was Elijah? The Baptist said, I'm not Elijah. Matthew 3. Matthew 3. Excuse me, I'm sorry, that's the wrong reference. Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11 is what I should have said. Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Verse 13. Matthew 11, verse 13. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. John is Elijah. Now, of course, Jesus didn't mean by that that Elijah had come back to life. Jesus meant that John the Baptist came and he fulfilled the Elijah prophecy. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Jesus said clearly, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. The Baptist said no. Now, some people, there's comments on this in the commentaries. Maybe this was early in his ministry when they asked him, uh, and he said, no, I'm not Elijah. But the point I want to get at here is that John the Baptist grew in understanding he grew in understanding. He didn't even understand his own commission, apparently, right at the beginning. Jesus says, this is Elijah. He is Elijah. The Elijah prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. Let's, yeah, let's go back there. Malachi chapter 4. Let's pick up a little bit of this very important prophecy. Right at the end of the Old Testament, Elijah is to come. Elijah is to come. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, is very famous prophecy, which requires a little bit of comment. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah is to come before the day of the Lord. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And that word there is that famous Hebrew word, kerem, complete obliteration, a ban of complete destruction. So it's a very important prophecy. Now, the historic Elijah was dead. He'd come and gone. He opposed Ahab. He opposed Jezebel. Uh, like John the Baptist, he went through some very difficult times. But here, the prophet Malachi talks about an end time, Elijah. And Jesus said, this is Elijah. John the Baptist fulfills the Elijah prophecy. Um, Jesus himself said so. Now, in Matthew 17, and this is the kind of subject that requires a little bit of explanation, Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12 there's another interesting twist on this Elijah matter. Matthew 17, verse 10. His disciples asked him and they said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The answer, of course, was that the scribes knew the prophecy in the book of Malachi. But then Jesus says something very interesting. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Look closely at verse 11. Come back to it in a second. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him. This is a reference to the Baptist. But did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. What did they do to the Baptist? They put him to death. Herod put him to death. He was a martyr. Jesus Christ, of course, gave up his life and was dead for three days and three nights. Elijah has come already, but verse 11 hints at something, another future fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. The Elijah prophecy is not yet completely fulfilled. When I went to Ambassador College, this question came up, and the uh, theology faculty had been instructed to say the church is doing an Elijah-like work, and I think that's the best way to explain it. The church is doing an Elijah-like work, rather than attached to this the name of any one individual, ministers whom we've known and loved. But Jesus said that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. The Baptist grew in understanding. The Baptist grew in understanding. 
We in the church of God have grown in understanding. You know, I, I've heard many, many people uh, make comments about Herbert W. Armstrong. And one of the things that I've always found to be really very unkind is some of the sneering that I've heard about some of the things he said about prophecy. Think about it for a moment. In the late 1930s, when the Second World War began, you can find this in the old literature, by the way, when the Second World War began, Mr. Armstrong said, this is it. This is the Great Tribulation. This precedes the coming of Jesus Christ and the setting up of the kingdom. And, of course, the Second World War ended. It was over, and the kingdom was not set up. And I can remember sitting through a particularly unpleasant session in which some of this was all kind of sneered at. You know, when, when the Second World War ended, Mr. Armstrong realized, no, that's not the end of it. There's at least one more resurrection yet to come. My point being that the church grows in understanding. The church is a living organism. We grow in understanding. Hopefully, day by day, week by week, there have been areas of doctrinal understanding where we've grown over the years. Pentecost, the spirit in man. The church grows in understanding. John the Baptist grew in understanding. Are you growing in understanding? Am I growing in understanding? Are we as a body growing in understanding? The church is not static. What about the future? What about the future for John the Baptist? He was, of course, one of the great prophets. When I gave this in Sherman, I asked the question whether John the Baptist will be in the first resurrection. And a gentleman came up to me and said, why would you not think he'd be in the first resurrection? Well, of course, the day of Pentecost had not yet come. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in Luke 13 and verse 28, we're told clearly that the prophets are going to be there in the first resurrection. So I think he will be. Look forward to meeting him. Luke 13, verse 28 there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. John the Baptist was, of course, a great prophet who came as the forerunner before the first coming of Jesus Christ. So I think we will hopefully see John the Baptist in the first resurrection. Malachi 3 verse 1. Malachi 3 verse 1. The, the um, book of Malachi is, is amazing. It re refers to five messengers. Here are a couple of the messengers in one verse, the messengers of God. Malachi 3, verse 1. The first part of the verse refers to John the Baptist and his work. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple refers to both the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ in one verse. Even the messenger, and our New King James translators have obligingly capitalized the word messenger here, even the messenger of the covenant, Christ, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Baptist was the forerunner. The Baptist was the one who came to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus Christ. Who prepares the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Welcome to the club. That's us. 
That's our responsibility. Now, of course, that's not the end of the story. We know that. We know there are going to be two prophets on the scene in the last days who will have a role in that as well. But one of the reasons why the Baptist's role is so important is because he historically had to do something that you and I have to do as well. And perhaps, perhaps that goes some way to explaining something that I want to close with as we move toward the end of the sermon. Let's go again to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. Luke 7, verse 26. Luke 7, verse 26. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. He was greater than a prophet. More than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And there... Jesus quotes from Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, and look at this comment at the end here, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But I didn't quote the second part of the verse. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's quite a thought, isn't it? He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You and I can be even greater than John the Baptist. And that, you know, I, I, I look at that and I say, well, how can that possibly be? How can that possibly be? Is that because we are part of a body of people who prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ? And maybe because that second coming, of course, changes things for the entire world. Who, he, who is, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Our job is to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist did his job. He did his job with courage, with humility. He did it with integrity. We must do the same. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist.